0: So as we look here at chapter 9, So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. Again, now the list of the post-exilic people, folks that are in the land. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. He reminds the children why it happened. It just wasn't coincidence. This was Judgment. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions, in their cities, were Israelites, priests, Levites, and Nethiim. Now, in Jerusalem, the children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin. And of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh, Uthiah the son of Ahmed, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, and the son of Banai of the descendants of Perez, and the son of Judah, of the Shilonites, Asaiah, the firstborn of his sons, and the sons of Zarela, Joel, and brethren, 690. And the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Mashalum, the son of Hadiva, the son of Hasuna, Abaniah, the son of Jeram, Elah, the son of Uzi, the son of Mikri, Mishalum, the son of Sheptiah, the son of Ruel, the son of of Anijah and their brethren according to their generations, nine hundred and sixty six. So what we're starting to get is the tribes that are coming back, okay? So we got the tribe initially of Judah, and now we're introduced to the tribe of Benjamin. and and I want you just to look at the numbers here. Do you remember when we were back in the first five books of scripture, and there were hundreds of thousands, right? We're we're reading about just the first sequence of those coming back. And we're reading of 690, 900, a very small fraction of what God had originally brought in that promised land, some of somewhere between 2 million. And now we see these smaller numbers, 956, all these were the men of the heads of their father's house. And now he goes on to the priest, right? Those willing to return to fill God's calling upon their lives. Of the priests, Jedediah, Jerib, Jakin, Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, excuse me, the son of Mashalom, the son of Zadok, it's a familiar name, the son of Marath, the son of Atub, the officer of the house of God, Adadiah, the son of Jerem, the son of Pashur, the son of Makkah, Messiah, the son of Adil, the son of Jaraz, the son of Mashalum, the son of Mishalmith, the son of Emer, and their brethren, heads of their father's house, 1,760. They were very able men to do the work of the service of God. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashtub, the son of Azakim, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Moriah, the S- Bacabar, Harash, Galal, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zik- Zikri, the son of Asaph, Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Galal, the son of Jadathun, and Berchaiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Nethevites. Now we get to the Levites, which those would have been the gatekeepers. So when you would get to the city of Jerusalem, they would be the ones that would be there first thing in the morning to open the gates so that you could come into the city, and they'd be the last ones to leave to make sure the gates to the city were locked so that people couldn't come in from the surrounding nations because they were so few in number and attack them and take them out like that because they're so few in number at this point during their first um, sequence of people coming. And the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, Talmon, Amin, and the brethren. Shalom was the chief until they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ebeshaph, the son of Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. So it's going back and saying this has been the legacy and the way it worked, the heritage, even back when it was a tabernacle, before there was even a temple. (coughs) And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, had been the officer over them in time past, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Mashalamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle, meaning all those chosen as gatekeepers were two hundred and twelve. Not a very large number. They were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel, the seer, had appointed them to their trusted office. So we see that David and then Samuel being Prophet, right? The first of the prophets, if we can say it that way, sort of crosses that line between judges and prophets. If you remember, Samuel comes in like that. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle, by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions the east, west, north, and south. And their brethren in their villages had to come with them from time to time for seven days. So we learned that their service time was a week. They would go, you'd serve seven on. So You could possibly serve seven off, seven on, seven off, and they would come with them that way. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers, and they were Levites, and they had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had responsibility, and they were in charge of opening it every morning. Now some of them were in charge of the serving vessels, for they brought them in and took them out by count. Some of them were appointed over the furnishings, over all the implements of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour, and the wine, and the oil, and the incense, and spices. And some of the sons of the priests made the ointment of the spices. Metahiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Carite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Karites were in charge of preparing the showbread. For every Sabbath, remember that? They would replace the showbread, and remember, even in the temple, and then also in the tabernacle, you'd go in, and the showbread, and they would bake it, and they would give a portion afterwards to the priest, but it was always to be before the Lord, and there was always the lampstand with oil. Remember that? Established. And this was a holy preparation that was done. And some of their brethren, the son of the Christ, were in charge of preparing the showbread for the Sabbath. These are the singers, the heads of the father's house of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. Their heads of the father's house of the Levites were heads throughout their genealogies. They dwelt at Jerusalem. And Now, like we talked about last week, the lens is getting super narrow. Now it's coming to Saul, right? So why is it doing that? Because from King Saul, who's it going to go to King David and then henceforth in the rest of our time in First Chronicles is going to all fo- focus on the Davidic line because, after all, Chronicles was written from a priestly perspective. So every Messiah coming through the Davidic line, looking for that, everything is the focus on that in First Chronicles. Did you know that, that every single book has a theme that way? And a writer, Ezra being the Holy Spirit-inspired writer, every single book of your Bible has a theme that way and we can see what the theme of first chronicles is. So Jael, the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Makah, dwelt at Gibeon. His first was A- his firstborn, excuse me, was Aden, the then Zur, Kish, Baal, Nur, Nadab, Gidor, Ahil, Zechariah, and Milcoth. And Milcoth got Sheman And they also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Nur begot Kish, Kish begot. Saul, we should now be these names should be very familiar to us now. And Saul begot Jonathan, Makalusha, Abinadab, and Eshbal. The son of Jonathan was Mirabal, and Mirabal begot Micaiah, or Micah. The sons of Micah were Pithon, Melech, Tariah, and Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Jerah, Jerah begot Elmeth, Azamath, Azamath, Zimri, and Zimri begot Moza, and Moza begot Benea, Repahiah, his son, Eliash, his son, and Azil his son. And Azil had six sons whose names were these, Ezerkim, Basharu, Ishmael, Shariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were the sons of Ezeel. Now, we're going to be looking at chapter 10. We're going to be switching here back to a narrative. So everything that we know about genealogy at this point in the first nine chapters, we've completed, If even if you want to count chapter nine as part of that because it's more of the tribes. We're moving back into sort of a narrative here. And again, please remember, we're, we're speaking or we're learning about those first, um, how do I put it? It's important for those in the land to understand the history of what's happened to their forefathers so that they do not repeat the same mistake. And that's exactly what you and I were given in 1 Corinthians 10, right? The Lord has told us this very saying that every single passage in the Old Testament is kept for you and I. It's why it's so important that we as believers read our Old Testament because he said there are examples to you and I today in the way we live so that we don't repeat the mistakes of those in the past, those same mistakes. So we're reading, again, of these first men that would have come in there, so that would be Zerubbabel, right? They What was, you remember his calling? If you've read, you, you know Zerubbabel. He was basically told to rebuild the temple, right? Right at the time of... Uh, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah, those two prophets prophets were contemporaries during the time of Zerubbabel. Then about 57 years after this, right, not where we are chronologically, but after those that come in the land next, you'll have um, Ezra. And he was uh, given by the Lord to go back, released, and he was to teach the word to the people. To teach that word. Um, and then Finally, obviously, we have 12 years later from that is, is when you have um, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was called back, if you remember, to rebuild the wall, right? rebuild the wall that way. So we, it, it helps if we understand what's, you know, what group of people we're talking about as we're looking and reading this. Who is the audience? This would have been the audience primarily, initially, for, for Zerubbabel and, and the people that went with him that left Babylon as they came in, they were hearing this, and many again, for the very first time. And, and I, I imagine here tonight, there's probably some people here or online, this is the first time you're reading through this, and, and this is the first time you're hearing this same um, history, which is your spiritual heritage. This is our spiritual pedigree as we were grafted in, unless you were Jewish, uh, as a Gentile, you've been grafted into this, it says in Scripture. So this is now your spiritual heritage as well, as we all read this. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malshua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw the sword and thrust through me with it lest the uncircumcised men come and abuse me. You, you understand what he's saying when, when you abuse me. Saul knew as king that if they caught him, they would catch him and torture him. And he was saying, I don't want to be tortured. He said, you do it, do his armor bearer. There's no way his armor bearer is going to do that, to, to actually be the one to uh, touch God's anointed, as David would say, right? There's no way. So the armor bearer hears this, but his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid, and rightfully so. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So that Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt there. Just think about that. Just days before, right? They were in their homes, and these were Jewish homes. And they were there and everything was well. And just a few days later, these Jewish men, women that were in those homes, they fled those homes. And now these Gentile nations, particularly speaking, the Philistines, move in and start to occupy those homes. that God had really desired to give to who? Israel. God's chosen people. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Apparently they recognized him, said this is the king Saul, this is who we've been looking for. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. So many scholars believe there would have been like a spear and his head would have been put on it and he would have done it in the temple of Dagon. And why would he do that? Because in these ancient times, when you defeated somebody, it was akin to saying that I defeated your God. The Canaanites and most of the nations in that land were polytheistic. Only Israel and Judaism was monotheistic at that time. One God. And so, what they were declaring when this happened, because Saul was a king, even though the spirit, if you remember, the spirit of God had left Saul because of his wickedness, his sin, he wasn't willing to follow after the Lord. He didn't, you know, he thought it upon himself, as we'll read here in a minute, we read exactly why, but he wasn't obedient to the Lord, and so there was a cost to the disobedience, but as it proclaims right now, it brings dishonor to God's name, because basically Saul's head is put in the temple of Dagon, and they're all mocking and jeering. And what they're really doing is it's not even just about Saul. They're mocking the one true God, the Lord. So at this point, they think, you see, we our God is better and bigger than all your gods. Yeah, no, not yet. They didn't, have, they didn't have the final answer right there. And when all of Jabesh Gilead heard it, now this is interesting, isn't it? This goes back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Um, do, do you remember that... Well, hold hold your finger here. Turn turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. You may remember if you're with us. Saul actually hears about what was going on Jabesh Gilead, and he comes to the rescue. One of the few things that Saul did that was honorable or right, you might say. Many of the things Saul did was not good, right? Very... Uh, Disobedient, but this was one thing that God highlighted, and it's interesting that God even allows Jabesh Gilead to come back and pay back this favor, this homage, if you can say it that way. First Samuel chapter eleven: Then Naash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Naash, "Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you." And Naash the Ammonite answered them, "On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes." And bring a reproach on all of Israel. says, that's, that's what the Ammonites said, we'll do. We'll do that if you establish, we'll establish a covenant with you if you're willing to do this. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all this territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. We'll agree to this. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the man of Jabesh. Then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messenger, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. In other words everybody report for duty. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent when he had numbered them in Bezek, and the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilad, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, and you shall have your help. And the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, or we may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people and the three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning to watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. You see, this was recorded, and, and what God does here is he allows, even in spite of this tragedy of Um, dishonor, that his head would be hung in a a pagan uh, temple like that, a pagan house here, this temple of Dagon, God still allowed, and I have no doubt that his spirit went to somebody in Jabesh Gilead, as we're going to read here in verse 11, and they hear this, and they hear what the Philistines do, and Jabesh Gilead says, no, there was a time when we were in need, and Saul remembered us, and because we really know who remembered him. The Lord, because it said the spirit of God came upon Saul. And so Saul went and what? He came and he says, no, you're not going to have to. Remember, they wanted him to knock out each uh, one of their eyes, their right eye like that. So they all would have been partially blind, had no depth perception. That means they couldn't fight correctly uh, with depth perception that way. So that's what they were trying to do. And he says, no. Saul says, no, tomorrow when the son will take care of all this. And that's exactly what God allowed. And God went with him and they destroyed them. Uh, trying to come against his chosen people. So Jabesh-Gilead, here's what's happened to Saul, verse 11. And all the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh, and they buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. I think that, I know this speaks a lot about Saul in some ways. I think it speaks more about the men from Jabesh-Gilead. To be honest with you, I I I think this says a lot for their loyalty and for how they were they remember the help they were given. The, this this is I think this is significant that we see this um, that they would put themselves in such harm's way for what bones for a, a burial, but to them it it means a lot. To them it meant a lot. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness. Just in case. You, did, you didn't read the first how many books, right? Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, disobedience, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. Please underline that in your Bibles. I don't think it could be any simpler or more plain. He makes it very plain here why he was being uh, punished and what you know the, it was simply because he did not keep the word of the Lord. That's where it is. It's 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 that that straight. And also because he consulted a medium, so we get the chi and and, well, that's Greek, but we get the and in the Hebrew. He consulted a medium, right? Remember that? The occult. It's linking this to demonic activity. Stay away from the occult. For guidance. They went to demons. Instead of Saul going to God and asking what's going to happen in fear, he went to, you know, and tried to provoke demons to, to, to speak so he could raise up the prophet again and give him the answer. Which, oh, by the way, he had made a law in in the land not to go to mediums, and he violated his own law as well. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, I think this is important. This is a good lesson for that next generation, isn't it? If you're that next generation and you're hearing about what happened to your parents, or should I say your parents' parents' generation, how many hundreds of years ago at this point, um, you're probably talking somewhere around 500 years ago, 480 and somewhere in there. And you're hearing about what had happened. I bet everybody's paying attention after just spending 70 years in captivity and finally just getting free. They're all ears at this point. We don't want to go ever go back to that again, we would we would think, right? So now the, the narrower the focus, we're, we're to David. or to David where God wants to draw our attention to his life, um, and through, you know, through all the things that will come through the seed, the Messiah. Yeah. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron. If you remember, the Hebron initially was uh, the, the first area. That's where, um, before the other nations began to um, come alongside David, it was Hebron. And if you remember who was there specifically, it was Judah and Benjamin at first. Those were the two tribes and the only two tribes. Everyone else was against David. That Or I don't want to say against, but... Yes, they were with Saul and not with David at that time. Saying, indeed, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabus. That's where we actually get the name Jerusalem. It comes from Jabus. It was the people that were there previously inhabited. Now, this is significant, and I'm, I'm going to draw our attention to this, because I want you to think about this for a minute. If we don't slow down, we can read right past this and miss what God's trying to tell us, or God's trying to give us the backdrop of what was going on, we get a little bit different here in Chronicles than we get in Kings and Samuel. This is, it's very important to get this backdrop. So Jabus, the name, the people that inhabited that, that eventually became Jerusalem as we know it, the Jebusites, they would have been about five miles from Bethlehem. Jebu and the Jebusites. So David, where did David, where was David born? Bethlehem. Where did David grow up? Bethlehem. What was David's role and responsibility? He was a? Shepherd, And as a shepherd, where did David spend most of his time? Out in the land with the flocks, in the fields, the territory, the whole area. So he's been up and down because shepherds, especially when you had to, you'd move from land and lot and lot and lot, and you move around like that, okay? So what he's done is he's oversee He's literally viewed this area. He's seen the Jebusites five miles. That's not very far at all, especially when you're moving a flock like that and walking through. He grew up in this area. He knows it like the back of his hand. He's seen the Jebusites. He's seen the wickedness. And he's he's had, he's seen the beauty of the land. And he's he knows how it's Jerusalem, if you know, it's very well insulated as a city. You could fortify it a lot easier than you could some of the other cities in Israel. So he's so close that he would have grown up and seen all of this. And we need to we need to remember that in context of what we're reading here. It says so where the Jebusites were in the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. You see that term, Zion, right? That is the city of David, Jerusalem, Zion. That's what that ends up meaning. Now, David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain, okay? And Joab, who is Joab again? That's David's nephew, as we already read in First Chronicles. In those lovely eight chapters of genealogy, we read about his three nephews, and we, one of them is Joab. And so we start to realize the relationship here between David and Joab, and why, when we're going to read about this here as we go on to verse ten and on, he's going to establish the basically his military. If you're going to come in and take over, land, or you're going to st- you're going to have to have a military now. It's different than today. Today we have a military and then we have police. Not so in ancient times. Your military and your police were one. They were one group and they served either function that way. Okay? So that's important to know, number one. Number two, he's going to lay out basically who his top three are going to be. And and, and this is important. I, I get it. This is, you know, for, for people that, you know, how do I say this? For, for those that want to, well, anybody can do anything they want to do. Yes, that's true with the gifting of God. But God does call and establish certain men and or women and or individuals to a specific role or responsibility. It doesn't mean they're better. It doesn't mean they're worse. It simply means God has ordained and called and given an office or a responsibility or a role to the individual. And we just have to acknowledge that that's just biblical. Because I think too often today in a politically correct society, people don't want to hear that anymore. They don't want to understand and yield to authority. They don't want to understand. They think of authority and they go, oh, that's great. You know, well, I want to be, I think of uh, sometimes our young people, you know, they, they take a job. I would like to be the CEO on day five. Uh, and, I, and as part of the contract, I want to bring my dog to work. But, you know, I, I, I'm joking, but um, you know, what do they say? It's the generation of me, the me generation. Yeah, or, you know, so I, I, again, I'm not knocking our younger people. It's not there. I'm not certainly knocking our younger people here. It has nothing to, it's just that idea of when the world begins to establish and there's a lack of the word of God being taught, you start to believe that as though that was the right way to conduct yourself or the right way life is handled rather than like many of us in this room, we grew up and we were taught to work your way up. You start at the bottom and you do whatever you have to do, and you just want to get your foot in the door uh, to get a job. And then once you're in, you work your way up, and you work hard, and 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 you're content with that, right? You're content with that. And, and I was raised that way with my father, and it's just the way I raise my sons and to teach them. You do any, you work, you do anything. You're never too good for anything that way. Um, and I think that's a, a biblical understanding here because Joab, he, David says, "Look, anybody wants to." go in and do this. And, and Joab's got his hand up and he's, he's I'm going, I'm going, right? He's the son of Zariah. And he went up first and became chief. We know that Joab will end up being his mighty general. He'll be very high up in the ranks. Will he do everything that David wants him to do? No, right? We read that there's many occasion that he actually lets Solomon have to deal with some things later on that day uh, that uh, joab didn't do and and should have handled correctly there's blood on his hands and then uh, then david dwelt in the stronghold right so he moved the headquarters from hebron this is officially where we read it in scripture where we read and it actually states it where jerusalem now becomes the headquarters for israel it's right in this passage Therefore, they called it the city of David, and we read about that in the New Testament, the city of David, right? And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. That's the most common title you'll see in all of Scripture, the Lord of hosts. you know what that means? The God of the armies. The most used title in all of Scripture for the Lord, the God of the armies, plural. He wants to invoke a certain thought in our minds that we are—we have a big God, and we're you and God, you and Jesus, you're a multitude, you and the Lord are a multitude in Scripture. I, I think of—I um, think of Psalm one twenty-two. Would you mind let's let's turn to Psalm one twenty-two here together? I think of David's heart. I think of. Um, the joy that David had. He always wanted uh, Jerusalem, right? Uh, Not Hebron. He knew, again, growing up in that area, he says, ah, yeah, he knew what the Lord was going to do there. I was glad, uh, Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord, the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for peace, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity be within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say peace be within you because the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. Isn't that nice? Since we're already there, look over to Psalm 126. And now we read a song, because that's what the Psalms were. They're all songs, of the return. We read what it was like in Psalm 122 when David was first coming there, and the people were coming there, and they were establishing it after Joab had cleaned the city. Now we're going to read 126 when it's a return to Jerusalem, what it was like for that next generation that comes in. This is, I, I love how the Lord connected these so closely. Psalm 122 and 126. When the Lord brought back that captivity of Zion, who were like though we were like those who dream. Did you catch that? We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't that that encouraging? He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Did you catch that? He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. I I immediately think of Messiah. Messiah coming again. I immediately think of that. I know that's not in context, but the topology here, you can't miss it. Bringing his sheaves with him. Isn't that beautiful? You can turn back um, beautiful psalms. We get the heart of the uh, pre-exilic and then the post-exilic people as they're back in the land. Now, we're going to read into the groupings with our time uh, remaining. We're going to see the three. The three, then we'll go break it out into 30. That's the way he breaks it out. And then we'll we'll conclude the, uh, the chapter there. Now, these were the heads of the mighty men, whom David had strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all of Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel, both military and police. And this is the number of the mighty men with David. And by the way, he already introduced the first one in verse 6. That was Joab. I just want to make sure everybody's got that straight. Um the second one here is Bean, the son of Hakamanite, chief of the captains he lifted up his spear against 300 and killed killed by one time that that says a lot okay you give a guy a spear and he could take out 300 men right i, I like rambo of his day i don't know what else to say i mean that's impressive that's that's what this guy did he took out so we start to see that this is supernatural the reality is, is as much as you don't want to trample, by the way, but the much as you turn around and think about, you know, that that character where, you know, he can run out and just, and he never gets hit with a bullet, right? You know, it's fictitious. The the reality, if you've ever been in war, you know that's not how it works at all, (laughs) and you certainly wouldn't run out like that ablaze, right? What we're seeing here, it, it brings our attention to the fact that God was working, and that this is supernatural. How does one man with just a spear in his hand go out against armies of 300 and come back. It shouldn't be. You can't explain it on the other way. I mean, he had a spear. They had other metallurgy. I mean, they had other weapons. And he comes back. After him was Eleazar. That's the third, okay? The son of Duda. I know some of you want to say Dodo. It's not. It's Duda. <laughs> the Hananite, the Hahite. Who was one of the three mighty men. Do you see that? Now we're connecting the three. He was with David at Pasadim. Now the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley. Okay, this this is gonna say a lot. This isn't even a wheat field. Like barley's the sort of the the wheat's up here at the premium. You can, you know, more sustain the barley you could eat, but mostly you would give that to animals or You know, but the barley was, humans ate it, but it was not at the higher end of the, like the wheatwood or the fish. So look what he does. This man, because of his loyalty, number one, we see a loyal character here. Number two, because of God's promise that he would, that the, that Israel was to have this promised land and to inherit that land and to keep that land and God would protect them as they were in this land. He, He took the promises of God literally. And, and rightfully so, look what he does. So the people fled from the Philistines, but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, okay? So they're standing right there, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory, all glory and honor to God. But what it shows is, is that they understood these mighty men. They weren't just mighty men by name. These captains, these three, they literally put out in the middle of this field And they said, no, when you would take over an area and you would capture that area, you had to then what police the area so that nobody would come in and try to steal it back. Or that's exactly what we just read. Three men against all of the Philistines and God gave them the victory. Why? Because God's a promise keeper. Every single time, God is a promise keeper. Now, three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim, or Rephahim. David was in the stronghold, and the garrisons of the Philistines was there, or was then in Bethlehem. Okay? So he's, he's come to his hometown here, taken to his hometown. And David said with longing, remember, again, he's in this area, he knew it like the back of his hand. He was always out because he was an under-shepherd. He was a shepherd. And so what do you think? He's over in this area. He says, boy... I know that well, right over there. I grew up drinking from that well. It's got the best water in town. Boy, I'm craving some of that water. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, okay? Have you ever gone to a different? Um, so in our family, you know, a lot of times we make our homemade sauce, right? We would travel. My mother-in-law, she had, we had family in um, in Florida uh, on, on my wife's side, and they would go down every year, and they would, and they would always say, oh, Tess, Tess, make your." gravy. That's an Italian way of saying red sauce, marinara, right? Make your, make your marinara. So make your gravy. So they'd come down there, right? She would always come down. She does it every Sunday. Every, it's what we do in Italian. Every Sunday, boom, it's, it's like clockwork. It's what we do, right? You come home after church. You sit down as a family and you eat together. This is very common. So they turn around and this is made. And so she says, oh, this will be beautiful. So they get down there, Tess, make your make your gravy. Oh, okay, okay. In Florida, she goes up to the sink. She turns the water on. She puts in. They're eating. Oh, this is so good. She said, "This tastes different." They said, "What? This is great." The kids, Lisa and her sister Kim, Ah, which is different? This tastes different." I laughed because in our house, our son Preston is now taking that responsibility upon himself. He's now the official sauce tester, and he lets everybody know in the house, "Ma, you changed something. You made it a little different." But in all seriousness if you've traveled and you've gone to different places and you've made recipes or dishes for someone you know the water is different at different places and when you go somewhere to cook like that and the water is different it changes the whole it can change the consistency of the sauce it can change everything it matters it matters you get a taste you get a you get an understanding of it right so here's david i mean he's a real guy he's looking over there he sees the well He's like that is the best water. He grew up with that water. He's thinking, you know, he's been in the wilderness. He's traveled. He's had water out of wells all over the place. He says that water, it is sweet. I, that's the water I gotta have it. So here he does. He calls it out, and he says it. And he, I don't. He must have said it all out. But he wasn't like ordering somebody to go get it. He was he ever just man. You go to a restaurant. I, 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 you know, I was at a restaurant too long, not too long ago with the. Uh, Family for me, and they, they, oh, you got to try this. It was an Italian restaurant, and you know, I was sitting with the family, we had a beautiful time, and they're out there, and you got to taste this, you got to taste it. And so we eat, and they say, wow, boy, I could really go for a polo, you know, polo la francese, right? I could go for a chicken French, right? You might say chicken French, right? And uh, they, they turn around and they bring it out, and you taste it with the, the lemon and the sauce. It's, mm. Do we need to have a moment of silence? No. <laughs> But, I mean, it's really good, right? You're like, wow, this is a very good pull-up Chase. Okay, so, you know, it's that. I want us, I want us to understand this is real. This, is, this has happened. David's reminded. It's like he's salad. That water's. And what do you say? That is, man, I'm craving that chicken French or, you know, whatever your favorite dish. I'm craving that. You say it out loud, but you're not even, you're not asking somebody to give it to you or make it for you. You're just, well, I'm craving such and such. This is all David does. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. He says, oh, if I could have that well, that water, which is by the gate. It's pretty specific. So three <laughs> broke through the camp. Okay, he didn't ask them to do this, but the three broke through the camp of the Philistines. They love David. They love David. They love him. And they drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out for the Lord. as almost a drink offering. And he said, far be it from me, oh, my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? He says, I can't do this. We're in the middle of a bath. He says, the water they went and got, it. they risked their lives. It's not talking about drinking blood. He's saying on their backs. It's, it was water. The idea here was these men risked their lives to get this water. He says, I can't. I can't, Lord, if there's anything that's going to happen is I'm going to pour it out before you as a drink offering to you, Lord, because you're the only one that's worthy. Nobody else comes close. And that's what he says here. He says, you know, shall I drink the blood of these men who put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by three mighty men. Again, his men loved him, right? But God loves them more. And only God uh, would get this sacrifice of worship to the Lord. Now, Abishai, again, one of his other nephews here, David's. The brother of Joab was chief of another three. So now we're being introduced to uh, verse 20, if you're taking notes. It's our next three. We've had our first three captains, right? We got, you know, uh, we read through those, Joab, uh, Joshua, Beam, and then um, and the third one there. And it's, uh, I just read it. And I should have it handy. But the third one there, anyway, we can go back and read. But the third one there, and now we're going to the next three. Okay. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was the next of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. So, again, we shouldn't be all that surprised after what we read already. You know, much is given, much is required that way, and God has certainly gone before them. Of the three, he was more honored than the other two men, therefore he became their captain. The idea is faithfulness. However, he did not attain to the first three. Okay, (laughs) the Lord puts that in there. He didn't attain to what the other guys did the, you know, we don't compare ourselves to the people to our left and right, but I think this is a good thing for us to understand biblically, that many times, the Lord has a place for us in a certain, you know, area of service, and it's, it's not better that way, but in this particular case, the, the guy went out, and he killed 300 men, you know, Abishai, but he never attains to the position of the other three, because God gave those other three men that position. And there's nothing wrong with that biblically. Again, I know in our politically correct socialist society they want, every you know, everybody should have every, you know, but that's not biblical. That's not biblical that way. He he had desired that these other three and now he they're over the next three. So he had lifted up a spear against the 300 men and killed them and they won name among these three. Of the three he was more honored than the others two and they therefore became the captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jodiah, Jodiah, the son of a valiant man from uh, Kabziel, who had done many deeds. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Why are we given such detail about the snow and the day? Well, because if it's snowy and it's winter, that means that this lion hasn't what? Eaten. And so this man goes into a cave where there's a hungry lion that wants to eat him and devour him. It's sort of, you know, I caught a fish that's this big. You get it, right? Like it's this big. So this is what we're understanding. I mean, it's not a misrepresentation in the example I just gave. But it's showing just that this, this was not just any lion. This was a lion that was savage, ready to kill and eat. And this man goes down into this myth and what does he have? It doesn't even say, you know, what, a spear or something like that? He goes down, and he kills this lion. And that's supernatural. And he killed an Egyptian man of a great height, five cubits tall. That's seven-plus feet tall, right? Um, in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with a staff. <laughs> you ready for this? And he rests wrestled the spear, or basically wrested, but that's wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Now that's pretty amazing. This guy's seven foot something tall. He doesn't have a weapon. The other man has a weapon. He goes down and wrestles the man, the Egyptian, takes the spear out of the man's hand and then uses the spear on the old man. That just ain't right. That just ain't right, right? I mean, you read this is not right. No, it's right when God's in it. These things Beniah the son of Jeodiah did and won a name among the three mighty men and did he was more honored than the 30 but he did not to attain to the first three and David had appointed him over his guard. Also the mighty warriors were Ashil the brother of Joab. So we're gonna, now we're at that next level. Verse 26 starts the next level. Now we're gonna read the 30. There's gonna be the next group of 30, okay? Instead of three, we went three, three and now we're to the 30. Elahanan the son of um, Dido of Bethlehem, Shamoth the Har- Hararite, Helez the Pelonite, Ira the son of Ekesh the Tukite, Abizir the Anathite, Shabaiakai the Hushite, Eli the Hathite, Mariah the Nethelite, Heled the son of Bena the Nethelite, the son of Rebiah, Agibia of the sons of Benjamin, Benaiah the Perthanite, Hariah of the book of Gash, Abel, or Abiel, excuse me, the Arthurite. Azamath and the Baharmath and Lad the Shabanite, There it is. Time twisting again. The sons of Hashim, the Gizanite Jonathan, the son of shagath the Hazarite Ahim, the son of Shakar and Hathray Afia Alephal, the son of Ur Hefer, the son of Hefer, the son of Makarite Math- Math- Ajay, the Pollenite, Hizor, the Camelite Naz. Nariah, the son of Azabai, Joel, the brother of Nathan, Mibhar, the son of Hagri, Zelik the son of Ammonite, Nahari, the Betharite, the armor-bearer of Joab and the son of Zariah, Ira, the Etherite, Karab, the Etherite, Uriah. There's a name that sounds familiar, huh? Uriah, you remember that? Now, Now look at this with me, please. Uriah who? The Hittite. Did you know Uriah was a foreigner? that says a whole lot. What does that say? Remember, David orders basically the death of Uriah. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. That's the first thing. Bathsheba was married to him, okay? That's that's the first thing. She was a foreigner. Now, what did God establish that? That they were evenly yoked, right? Spiritually speaking as well. The other aspect of that, it tells us something very interesting, that even the foreign nations around them, some of the men basically recognized God's hand of leadership upon David, and they were willing to basically denounce their citizenship, if I can say it that way, of their birth nationality to go and serve under David because he was a mighty king of valor, because he was a servant leader. You know, that's why Saul didn't like him, right? He killed his 10,000s while Saul killed his thousands as it was recorded. So we learn here even foreigners, Uriah the Hittite, Zobad the son of Adaniah, the son of Shez, the Reubenite, again, right, a chief of the Reubenites, the 30 with him, Hanan the son of Makkah, Josepheth the Methanite, Uzziah the Astarite, Shammah, Jael the sons of Hotham, the right. Jedidiel, the son of Shermi and Jehoah, his brother, the Hithite, Eliel, the Mahavite, Jerabi, Drabi, the Jehozeviah, the sons of Elnam, Ithma, the Moabite, Eliel, Obed, and Jezeel the Mezabite. Several, again, several men from the surrounding nations are you know, recorded here in, is David's leadership, and God gifted them. God gifted them. Well, I think we'll stop here for this evening. I encourage you guys to go ahead and read uh, chapter 12, uh, through 14 for our study for next week. Chapter 12, uh, 13, and 14 for our study next week. I invite the musicians to come forward. And uh, isn't it awesome just reading the word of God and seeing how God's just did all of this supernaturally? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think God of the armies, God of hosts, and all the things that we may be going through individually in our lives, it's a constant reminder that God is Far bigger than our circumstances, any one of our circumstances, no matter how grave or overwhelming. I I really read the Book of First Chronicles, and as I told you when we were introduced, and I was introducing this book, it's a book of encouragement. It's for that next generation that is really waiting for Messiah. It's that book where they're sitting there and they're they're in the new land and they're back in Jerusalem, and, and all they think all hope's lost. And God has said, "I'm not done with you yet." And no matter how, 2,000 years later even, there are still men and women walking around saying, and they call it's called replacement theology, where they've tried to take Israel and say, oh, Israel, God's done with Israel, and they've replaced the church where only Israel belongs, okay? It's called replacement theology, and it's, it's very popular today in a lot of the, you know, cultic-type uh, denominations or, or fringe followings. And the whole idea behind it is, once again, they're missing, just like they would have missed it 2,000 years ago, God is not done with his chosen people. He's going to redeem. As we read the prophets, God has promised he's going to even redeem Israel. He's going to come back and he's going to give them a new heart. He's going to give them the ability to call upon him. And they are. They're going to reach out when the five nations surround Jerusalem and Israel and they come in to attack them. That couldn't have happened before 1948 because they weren't all in there. But it happened in 1948, not that long ago. And once they're all part of now a nation again this way, the stage is set. The stage has been set. And so now these five nations, and we read very carefully in Ezekiel who these nations are. Russia, right, Turkey, who used to be an ally of ours. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, even say Turkey was your ally. Turkey was an ally to the United States of America. Just recently in the last decade, we have seen Turkey turn and join with what? Russia the players are in in play the pieces are in place it's happening god is orchestrating it and it's just like he said in his word and as we read through these two you know 2000 years we see the same thing our god's a promise keeper he's coming very soon look up your redemption draws nigh amen amen